Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amuka na unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and we're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We're on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelenzinzi, Tabiso Luhoko and Tami Kluza. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, U.S. President Barack Obama slams African leaders who cling to power and Burundi opposition attends parliament opening after disputed elections. In economics, African diplomats hail new free trade pact with the U.S. And in sports news, Congolese player remains hospitalized after spinal injury. But first up, the news with Onel Nzinzi. Thank you, Lulu. Looking at your news update, Nigerian President Muhammadu Buhari is in Cameroon for a three-day meeting about a new regional force tasked with fighting Boko Haram. Nigeria's military says the multinational joint task force will replace a regional offensive that has scored a number of victories against the Nigeria-based militant since February. The force will have its headquarters in Cameroon. U.S. President Barack Obama has wrapped up his visit to Africa with a visit to the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia on Tuesday. Obama addressed the AU and openly criticized bad governance and African leaders who cling to power after their term of office has expired. Coletta Wanjohi has more. President Obama has also reiterated that Africa needs good governance. He says that Africa does not need strong leaders but strong institutions that can translate into a positive war against challenges like terrorist groups like Al-Shabaab from Somalia and Boko Haram in West Africa. Other issues that the United States president highlighted in his speech include the need for Africa to increase its intra-Africa trade. He says Africa should learn to trade with itself before trading with non-African states. He has also asked Africa to promote human rights for journalists and opposition parties. President Obama is the first American president to address the African Union. Wartown Somalia will not be able to hold full elections due next year, citing political and security situations in the country. Parliamentary Committee Chairperson in charge of the elections, Abdullahi Barre, says Parliament and Government have agreed there cannot be a one-man, one-vote election in the country in 2016. The Western-backed government is propped up by a 22,000-strong African Union force, which fights alongside the Somali army against al-Shabaab militants. The latest attack was on Sunday when a suicide truck bomber killed 13 people at a hotel which was popular with government officials and foreign visitors and housed three diplomatic missions. 
Zimbabwe says current chairperson of the African Union, President Robin Mugabe, was not scheduled to attend the AU meeting on Tuesday, refuting claims that President Barack Obama snubbed him. Obama addressed the AU commission on Tuesday, a meeting Mugabe did not attend. Zimbabwe and the U.S. have had strained diplomatic ties over Zimbabwe's alleged human rights abuses. Zimbabwe's permanent secretary for foreign affairs, Joey Bima. If President Obama had wished to see President Mugabe in his capacity as chair of the African Union, he was not going to summon him to Addis Ababa. Protocol does not allow that. He would have visited Zimbabwe and then met President Mugabe there. So there is no issue of a snub. These are two bilateral visits, and one to Ethiopia, which happens to, to, to host the headquarters of the African Union. And finally, the Southern African Development Community, in partnership with South Africa's Department of Water and Sanitation, is hosting the Sadek Water Week South Africa in South Africa's capital, Pretoria. The three-day event seeks to create a platform for the Sadek Regional Water Program and River Basin Organizations Initiative with the Global of Improving Water Resources Management and Development. The event forms part of the work of the Sadek Directorate of Infrastructure and Services, which provides a platform for its member countries to address water-related issues and challenges. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelin Sinzi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onele. It is 8.05 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. U.S. President Barack Obama has wrapped up his visit to Africa with a visit to the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Obama addressed the African Union and openly criticized bad governors and African leaders who cling to power after their term of office had expired. Koleta Wanjohi reports. The United States President Barack Obama finalized his visit in Ethiopia with a visit to the African Union Commission in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa, where he first had bilateral talks with the chairperson of the African Union Commission, Dlamini Kosazana Zuma. Issues pertaining agriculture, energy and security, among other issues, were discussed. President Obama then addressed the African Union, where he directly highlighted the existing challenge in African politics of leaders refusing to leave office after their terms are over. President Obama has given an example of Burundi, whose presidential elections have been contested as President Pierre Nkurunziza attempts to forcefully take a third term in office. Obama insists that the African Union must assist in ensuring the African leaders follow laws that guide their stay in power. When a leader tries to change the rules in the middle of the game just to stay in office, it risks instability and strife, as we've seen in Burundi. And this is often, and this is often just a first step down a perilous path. And sometimes you'll hear a leader say, well, I'm the only person who can hold this nation together. (laughs) If that's true, then that leader has failed to truly build their nation. President Obama has also reiterated that Africa needs good governance. He says that Africa does not need strong leaders, but strong institutions that can translate into a positive war against challenges like terrorist groups like Al-Shabaab from Somalia and Boko Haram in West Africa. 
Our efforts to ensure our shared security must be matched by a commitment to improved governance. Those things are connected. Good governance is one of the best weapons against terrorism and instability. Our fight against terrorist groups, for example, will never be won if we fail to address legitimate grievances that terrorists may try to exploit, if we don't build trust with all communities, if we don't uphold the rule of law. There's a saying, and I believe it is true, if we sacrifice liberty in the name of security, we risk losing both. Other issues that the United States president highlighted in his speech include the need for Africa to increase its intra-Africa trade. He says Africa should learn to trade with itself before trading with non-African states. He has also asked Africa to promote human rights for journalists and opposition parties and also the need to have concerted effort as a continent in fighting against climate change. President Obama is the first American president to address the African Union. Colette Njoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Zimbabwe has refuted claims that U.S. President Barack Obama snubbed African Union Chair President Robert Mugabe during his visit to the African Union headquarters. Relations between the two nations have been strained by a decade-long economic sanction over alleged human rights abuses. Shingai Nyoka has more. Zimbabwe is refuting claims that the U.S. President's failure to meet the current African Union Chair President Mugabe is a snub. The Permanent Secretary for Foreign Affairs, Joey Bima. If President Obama had wished to see President Mugabe in his capacity as chair of the African Union, he was not going to summon him to Addis Ababa. Protocol does not allow that. He would have visited Zimbabwe and then met President Mugabe there. So there's no issue of a snub. These are two bilateral visits, and one to Ethiopia, which happens to, to, to host the headquarters of the African Union. Zimbabwe says the president had not been scheduled to attend the sitting, which President Obama addressed on Monday. The African Union is not sitting at this point in time. Otherwise, the chair would have been represented either by himself or by his representative. I understand that he's going to address the African Union Commission not 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 uh, heads of state and then to libya where former leader muammar gaddafi's son saif al-islam had been sentenced to death president mugabe has been critical of the west's role in the overthrow of gaddafi and subsequently severed diplomatic ties with that country there is chaos in libya that that they, they, there is no way of saying which government is in, which government is in charge and under the current circumstances we do not think that the circumstances exist or the conditions exist for a person to have a fair trial. Shingai Nyoka, Harare, Zimbabwe. The newly elected parliament in Burundi is holding its first ordinary session due to wind up on Friday. Although the opposition coalition hopeful Burundians is refusing to recognize the outcome of the recent presidential and parliamentary elections in that country, a part of the coalition attended the opening session on Monday, including its leader Agathon Rwasa, along with 18 other elect members from the coalition, creating confusion among the public, especially his followers. Bernard Bankukira reports from Bujumbura. When the first parliamentary session was announced, all eyes were on the opposition coalition hope for Burundians to see whether Agaton Gwasa and his men and women will attend the session or not, as they had rejected the elections organized on June 29th and July 21st. 
Surprisingly, Agaton Gwasa, the leader of the coalition Hope for Burundians, attended the parliament session with 18 others from Hope coalitions. He says that they have taken the decision to respond to the trust of the people who voted for them. 30 seats have been allotted for the coalition. As an opinion thinks Agaton Gwasa has betrayed his counterparts of the coalition, he says it's an emotional feeling that will soon change with time. I'm not letting down anybody. And perhaps this is a judgment which comes from just emotional feelings. Let them take some few times, some few days, they will come to a conclusion that they are not betrayed. Acton Dwasa recognizes that the recent presidential and parliamentary elections were not held in respect of the recommendations of the international community. As a government of unity has been recommended, Mr. Gwasa doesn't openly recognize to take part in the government. But for him, taking part in the parliament will offer him ground for discussions in the dialogue which, according to him, must continue. You know, this issue of government is not yet there on the agenda. Because when we, we have to form the government, we have to, to just consider what is uh, mentioned in the, in the Constitution. And uh, if I look on how this parliament is set, I think there is a need to have a deep dialogue between the parties so that we can be able to form a government. Otherwise, we may have just a monoparty government, which is not acceptable with our constitution. The coalition, along with other opposition parties, announced their withdrawal from the race, alleging the environment was not permissive for a free, fair and credible electoral process. His followers have conflicting views. Some are happy with his decision, while others got confused, alleging they were not aware of that. People of Unyanzrake, especially members of UFN, they were surprised yesterday because they didn't know about him to attend the assembly. But after noon, when he spoke, about his decision, they were happy. Some of them, they come to me as they try to show to show me that they are happy. I think now everything is okay and very well. Our friends, members are happy. I'm not feeling okay because we were not informed about this decision. We just heard about it on the radio that he dated the, the, the parliament. The citizens are not well informed about this decision. Myself and according to the views of the members of the party, they would like him not to to, to attend this, I mean, this session of the parliament be, uh, well, without informing the, I mean, the, the members of the party. He will not inform them. They do not know what motivated him to, to, to join the parliament. We are still waiting for him. Maybe we will finally be informed about uh, what motivated him to take this decision and they will know what to do. I would like to, to advise him not to forget about what happened. Himself, he remembers that he didn't vote, and he didn't I mean, advise his members to go to vote. Uh, but now he is attending these parliament sessions, and uh, we have this, uh, I mean, this opposition which is saying that the, the, the elections were not fair. 
we are the members of the opposition, we are still waiting for the election. The coalition Hope for Burundians was formed a few days before the elections. It's made up of two unrecognized radical wings, the Tutsi-dominated wing of the Rupona Party and the Hutu-dominated wing of the FNL, in a bid to vie for seats and confront the ruling party CNDD-FDD. Charles Nitije and his turn men from the Upona party within the coalition did not attend the session as they say they still not recognize the election results. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankokira reporting from Bojumbura. UN Undersecretary-General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator Stephen O'Brien says at least 27 aid workers have been killed since the start of the South Sudanese conflict Stephen O'Brien has also expressed shock at the way aid workers were being treated. James Shimangula reports. Speaking at a press conference in South Sudan's capital, Juba, the United Nations Humanitarian Emergency Relief Chief Stephen O'Brien said, apart from 27 UN aid workers losing their lives, dozens more remain unaccounted for following the current 19-month armed conflict. O'Brien has just completed a four-day trip to South Sudan. The trip took O'Brien to two conflict-torn regions, Upper Nile and Unity, Basishan, of government troops as well as rebels led by former Vice President Riek Machar. O'Brien's remarks coincide with the talks taking place in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia with the express purpose of building Africa support for decisive action against South Sudan. Already U.S. President Barack Obama, who is also attending the talks, has vowed to team up with the Troika to take punitive action against the Yuba government and rebels if they reject an ultimatum to end the fighting by the 17th of August. Back in South Sudan's capital, Juba, United Nations Humanitarian Relief Chief Stephen O'Brien amplified the following point at a press conference. I call on all parties to uphold their obligations to comply with the principles of international humanitarian law, real law, and ensure the safe passage of humanitarian assistance. We need rapid and unhindered access to provide assistance to conflict-affected communities by the most efficient means possible, be that air, road or river. O'Brien, who interacted with the displaced South Sudanese and heard their cries, had this to say. They are tired of living in fear. They want to rebuild their lives. They've lost husbands, wives, children. Their homes and livelihoods have been destroyed. Their children are not in school, and thousands have been taken by armed elements. Women and girls have been targeted throughout the conflict. They have been beaten, abducted, raped, and set on fire. I call on the leadership of the warring parties to listen to the people and to lay down their arms, stop the violence, reconcile their differences, and commit to sustainable peace. If the violence continues, the already vast number of people suffering will continue to rise appallingly. I shared with him our collective great sadness and disappointment that the hopes and dreams of the people of South Sudan at its birth four years ago, which I witnessed, are shattered. Responding to UN humanitarian chief's remarks, 
Stephen O'Brien, President Salva the spokesman, Wekatenwek, said the government and the top officials are currently working in tandem to protect humanitarian aid workers. But Wake warned that his government cannot protect UN workers in areas under the control of rebels. Already, the government has cooperated with the enemies and protection of enemies and stuff. What the government cannot guarantee when they are working on the side controlled by the rebels. We have done all the best to ensure that those who are working with the humanitarian organization are safe while in South Sudan. That was President Salva Kiir of Sudan's spokesperson, Weka Tengwek. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza, Africa, Amuka, na Unai. A global shortage of vaccines against the killer meningitis disease could result in a large breakout in Africa. This warning by the United Nations comes amid a resurgence of meningitis C in sub-Saharan Africa, which has not been seen since the 1970s. According to the World Health Organization and partner agencies, Niger and Nigeria are in the grip of the latest outbreak, with 12,000 cases and 800 deaths so far. Daniel Johnson has more. Every five to six years, communities in sub-Saharan Africa know they face a return of lethal meningitis. It creates panic when it emerges, as explained by World Health Organization's Dr. Olivier Ronville. People really is very, very afraid of meningitis. They know what are the consequences of this epidemic. They are so afraid that they really go forward to ask for vaccine and treatment, something that we haven't seen happening for Ebola in these countries. The disease causes an inflammation of the lining around the brain and spinal cord and can kill up to 20% of those it infects. WHO estimates that so far this year, the latest outbreak has killed 800 people in Niger and Nigeria. As it's a bacterial illness, it can be treated with a vaccine. But there are several strains of meningitis and they all require their own vaccine. The problem is there aren't enough vaccines to go around in the 25 or so countries that the World Health Organization says are at risk of a serious outbreak. Here's WHO's Dr. Olivier Ronville on the dangers posed by the various strains of meningitis, which are called serogroups. Unfortunately, we don't have the right vaccine available for that. Since 2010, African countries have been vaccinating against the serogroup A. It was a huge success. Serogroup A since then have really disappeared from these countries. But what we see with this uh, emergence of other serogroups is that we need a vaccine able to protect against all serogroups. And we don't have such vaccine now available at affordable price for Africa. The strain that's behind the new health alert is meningitis C. It was reportedly last seen in Africa in the 1970s and little is known about why it's returned. What is known, however, is that the best available vaccine costs up to $50 per person, WHO says, making it too expensive for health agencies and countries that need it. The alternative is a much cheaper jab that's known as a polysaccharide vaccine, but it's only available for up to three years. And even this vaccine is in short supply. In the current outbreak, there was only enough vaccine to treat children under 15 years old, even though 40% of infections occurred in older people. To prevent this outbreak taking on epidemic proportions, WHO and its partners have called on drug manufacturers to produce a stockpile of 5 million of the most costly vaccines, which are known as a conjugate vaccine. 
So far, they've proved unwilling to do so, according to WHO's Dr. William Perea. The consequences could be grave, he says. The problem that we are facing now is that if we don't manage to put together this five million stockpile, we will be not well armed to respond to the epidemics that may hit Africa next year. If we vaccine with this polysaccharide vaccine, we may have again this epidemic risk in two years' time, and we would like to avoid that. According to the WHO, the need for vaccines is more urgent than ever in sub-Saharan Africa's so-called meningitis belt. And although there's a glimmer of hope from new drug manufacturers in Cuba and Brazil, the UN says they haven't made enough progress on producing a vaccine yet. Daniel Johnson, United Nations, Geneva. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, revetua. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil élevé. Weya wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, Dumelang, San Bonani. Africa, Mulishadi, Pudibanj. Africa, Enyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. We, we are, are one people. people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A new study shows that one in four South Africans suffer from hunger every day. The report by the Studies in Poverty and Inequality Institute was launched in Johannesburg yesterday. It finds that despite widespread hunger and food insecurity, there hasn't been a sufficiently coordinated policy effort by government to end hunger and ensure the right to food in the country. Sashin Naidu reports. South Africa is said to be a food-secure nation, producing enough food to adequately feed everyone. But the reality is that one in four people currently suffer from hunger on a regular basis. The numbers of people facing hunger can be estimated at 13 million in total in the country. Malnutrition is also a major underlying cause of death in more than 60% of South Africa's children under the age of 5. Co-author of the report, The Right to Food in South Africa, Busiso Moyo, says the hunger situation in the country is cause for concern. The situation is very grim. Um, I mean, what we do know is that in, uh, namely one in four South Africans suffer from uh, from hunger. This is uh, going by you know national statistics and that sort of stuff. The percentage of people that are actually you know, uh, feeling the burden of hunger as a result of high prices and so forth is very, very gruesome. Granted, there's some challenges around the technicalities of it in terms of what sort of methodology informs the numbers. Moyo says government must provide people with a framework to ensure that everyone can have the right to food. But what I can say is that in essence, one in every four South African uh, South Africans are suffering from the issue of hunger. Because also in essence, when we're talking about the right to food, you know, it's not necessarily a question of the state giving food parcels to people and that sort of stuff. It's more about how do they provide a framework which ensures that um, you know, everybody can realize their right to food, so to speak. 
Section 27 of the South African Constitution guarantees the right to have access to sufficient food to all people in the country. However, the study's research on access to sufficient and nutritious food shows that this most basic of rights remains far from being fulfilled for millions of South Africans. Another co-author of the report, Daniel McLaren, says the right to food remains the only constitutional right not legislated for the country. Overall, we find that ultimately for the right to food in South Africa is a a lack of actual accountability for delivery on this right. If you look at the right to housing or education, there is legislation at a national level and there is accountability at a ministerial level for the implementation of these rights. But with the right to food, we we don't have legislation yet, um, despite a bill being called for over 10 years ago. So one of the things, one of the key things that we're calling for in this report is actually a process to be begin with government and wider stakeholders, including the private sector, which obviously plays a huge role in the delivery and distribution and production of food, a participatory process towards drafting framework legislation on the right to food. Deputy Minister for the Department of Justice and Constitutional Development, John Jeffrey, says that all South Africans need to play their part in alleviating hunger from the country for good. It's an issue of food security in South Africa. Uh, The problem is that we do have enough food, uh, but not everybody gets it. Um, The richer people uh, are able to get more food and get overweight, get obese. Uh, Poorer people have uh, less access to food. We are all responsible for people in our country, for the people in our country who don't have enough to eat. We all need to make sure that we do something to uh, address that. The good news is that there are fewer food insecure households today than 10 years ago. At a national level, the study shows that there is a growing supply of food for everyone in the country. I'm Sasha Naidu in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Culture and joy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ngatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.29 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in time to today in 2003, a Sierra Leonean le- rebel leader, Fode Sanko, who had been in United Nations custody since 2000, awaiting trial on charges of mass murder and other crimes, dies at a hospital in Freetown after a stroke. That was today in history in the year 2003. Africa, rise and shine. Headlines up next with Onelin Zinzi.
A new regional force tasked with fighting Boko Haram jihadists should go into action very soon. Somalia is unable to hold full elections next year due to the political and security situation in the country. An unidentified gunman should dare a security guard outside the embassy of Niger in Egypt. Channel Africa News. Thank you, Onele. South Africa will host the Global Entrepreneurship Congress in Johannesburg in 2017, focusing on African entrepreneurs, innovators and inventors. The event will map out entrepreneurial ecosystems, share new developments in startup financing and connecting business leaders. A summit is expected to attract more than 5,000 delegates. For more on this, Khomoto Mopulane spoke to Tsulufelo Mokhozi, Director of Economic Development Facilitation at the city of Johannesburg. The Global Entrepreneurship Congress is the world's largest gathering of startup champions, policymakers, funders, researchers, and entrepreneurs themselves. And it basically has representation from 160 different countries. This meeting happens annually. And the last two meetings were held in Moscow and Milan. And in 2017, it will be the first time that this kind of meeting is held in South Africa. And what does it mean um, both for Johannesburg and for South Africa to host such an event? Well, you know, I mean, this global gathering brings in, you know, the most knowledgeable, most experienced players in entrepreneurship development and they're coming to South Africa. So we expect that it's really going to elevate the game in South Africa for people that are involved in entrepreneurship development. We also think that, you know, the opportunity from a networking perspective for South African entrepreneurs and policymakers and researchers to be plugged into global networks, which we think will be beneficial way beyond the event itself, you know. We think that that kind of interaction really means that we are going to be part of the world and be part of the best knowledge and the best practices that are happening anywhere in the world linked to entrepreneurship development. Mm-hmm. There is also, of course, you know, a tourism aspect because we're expecting about 5,000 international delegates from all over the world to come into Johannesburg. And they bring, of course, you know, not only their wallets and their spending, but they also get to experience Johannesburg and South Africa and to go back home and hopefully to spread the news that you know, Johannesburg is a great place to do business, it's a great place to hold business meetings, it's a great place for tourism. And we think that will have a positive impact in a way that is similar but on a smaller scale to really what we think we experience from the World Cup where people were, you know, pleasantly surprised to discover that South Africa is such a wonderful and advanced economy. Research shows that small businesses have an increasingly high failure rate, and and in most cases these are black and female-owned businesses. Uh, we also see statistics showing that you know small businesses have, have very limited chances of surviving, especially in the first few years. Would imagine that such a conference would obviously look into the different ways entrepreneurs can tap into the opportunities that are there and the challenges to engage and to share the know-how of the industry. Yes, and in fact, you know, the Congress itself is a meeting of different types of communities of practice. So, interestingly, there's also, you know, a global entrepreneurship uh, research network where researchers all over the world will also be meeting at the same Congress and sharing the best knowledge 
uh, that has emerged on entrepreneurship throughout the world. And you know, one of the interesting things that we are really looking at is what works and what doesn't work, and what evidence is there. Because, you know, I think in the past, many of the policy decisions that we make sometimes are made with good intentions, but with not really a strong evidence base to show that that kind of intervention works. So, you know, this meeting will also be a place where we will be sharing knowledge about the latest studies that show, you know, what kind of programs look like they're worth trying out because maybe they've worked somewhere else, and what kind of programs it really seems like there's very little evidence that they're having an impact, so we should really look at phasing them out in the long term. And that was Sulofelo Mokhodzi, Director of Economic Development Facilitation at the city of Johannesburg in South Africa, speaking to Khumutu Mopulane. It's 8.35 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Department of Economic Opportunities, Tourism and Agriculture in South Africa's Western Cape Province says the country's tourism industry could collapse if new visa regulations remain in place. MEC Alan Wind briefed members of the Provincial Standing Committee of Economic Opportunities, Tourism and Agriculture on the impact that the country's new immigration laws have had on key sectors including education, fishing and oil and gas. A study commissioned by the Tourism Business Council of South Africa has predicted that the country will lose 1.4 billion rand in direct tourism spend this year as a result of the changed immigration regulations. Sisandangwala reports. The National Development Plan has identified tourism as one of the key sectors to reduce inequality and eliminate poverty. Last year, it contributed around 10% to job creation and the country's economy. The industry was of one mind that it would play an increasingly important role in helping the economy grow. But changes in immigration regulations have tourism entities up in arms, believing that the stringent requirements will turn visitors away, and in so doing, they will lose hundreds of millions of rands in income and scores of jobs. Western Cape Minister of Economic Opportunities and Tourism, Alan Windy, says his department is gravely concerned. One hotel group already tells us that 20,000 bed nights down. Uh, we've already seen that uh, some of the language schools are being impacted, uh, where they are retrenching people because they just cannot get their students in, primarily on the back of the oil and gas industry. Um, and in that space, they are really, really suffering. Uh, so many of them are halving in size and more uh, retrenching staff. The two areas of concern are the requirement for all children younger than 18 years to be in possession of an unabridged birth certificate when travelling in and out of the country and the requirement for tourists to now appear in person during visa application processes in order to obtain a biometric visa. Dutch national Hermann Klok almost had to cancel his annual family holiday to Cape Town because he didn't have an unabridged birth certificate for his four-year-old son. We had a little bit uh, difficulties when we entered the country. Uh, we wanted to get a visa from them and um, previous years it was, uh, wasn't a problem. But now they said, no, you need a birth certificate, but we couldn't find both uh, when we were at home in the Netherlands. But we had our uh, marriage book, which is kind of a family book that also the children that you get are written into. Philippe Lobo from Mozambique says even though his family didn't encounter problems, many would-be visitors have been dissuaded from coming to South Africa because of red tape. We are aware of uh, many people from Mozambique from where we come from. 
that are having issues in the border. Uh, many of them don't have uh, the financial ability to pay for tr sworn translations of the birth certificates of their children in Mozambique, which are quite costly, uh, which is uh, which will definitely have an impact on, on people coming to South Africa. A study commissioned by the Tourism Business Council of South Africa has found that the industry lost over 800 million rand in direct spend last year due to the change regulations. It has predicted that the number of lost foreign tourists is likely to increase to 100,000 this year, costing 1.4 billion rand. Wendy says the long-term spin-offs from all this could bring the tourism industry to its knees. From a brand point of view, it's difficult to come and visit us, so I think we're going uh, to lose many, many, many uh, tourists because it's difficult to come here. But I think more importantly, it's even more difficult to come here if you want to bring your children along. So I think the, the major brand damage over time is going to be that we are going to be seen as, a, as not a family-friendly family, family friendly destination. Um, so don't come and visit us if you've got a family. Government is considering reviewing the controversial new visa regulations. Attempts to get comment from the Department of Home Affairs were unsuccessful. I'm Sisanda Nguala in Cape Town. <laughs> Wildlife officials have accused an American hunter of killing Cecil, one of the oldest and most famous lions in Zimbabwe, without a permit after paying $50,000 to two people who lured the beast to its death. The lion was lured out of Hangwe National Park using bait. Simon Muchema has more from Harare. Wildlife authorities in Zimbabwe say a professional hunter has been arrested for killing a famous lion on the 6th of July in a conservancy near Wange. According to Emmanuel Fundira, president of Safari Operators Association of Zimbabwe, the hunter was arrested because he did not have a license to kill any lion. Lions are a source of tourism in Zimbabwe, and the said cat called Cecil has been described as the source of nearly 10 million U.S. dollars over a number of years as the tourists would pay to see it in the main camp of Wanke National Park. Cecil is a lion that was under surveillance in scientific studies in Zimbabwe and hence unfit for hunting. Allegations so far say hunter Theo Bronkost connived with a local landowner called Honest Raymond Lovu to kill the lion. Anyone interested in killing animals such as lions for trophies require special clearance and licenses from the state. Fundira say the landowner did not have a permit to kill lions on his hunting quota for 2015, making the killing of Cecil a criminal offense. However, investigations say the actual killer of the lion is American dentist Walter Palmer from Minnesota, believed to have paid £35,000 to shoot and kill the much-loved lion Cecil with a bow and arrow. Walter Palmer is yet to be arrested. As for the details, uh, some of them are still before the court, the court's but uh, what I know at the moment is fairly official because ourselves, uh, Safari Operator Association and Parks and Wildlife Authority have issued a joint press statement, which I will give you a copy if you have not received already or I can send it to you by email, uh, stating the circumstances behind uh, this tragic incident. Uh, in fact, the client or the person involved or the offender uh, is a gentleman who is an American called Walter James Palmer. Walter James Palmer is the guy who came into the country around the beginning of this month of July and was enticed 
we're not quite sure yet to harvest this particular lion. The proper market value for this lion, uh, which is a big treasure, would be around 100,000 US dollars. Uh, information so far received shows that there was money which was exchanged uh, to the tune of around 55,000 US dollars. According to Emmanuel Fundira, anyone caught for illegally killing animals such as lions face a jail term of up to 10 years imprisonment or a fine of up to 20,000 US dollars. Uh, if it proves that this particular animal was poached, there are penalties which are all familiar with. And poaching is an illegal offtake of an animal when you don't have uh, a, a valid permit. And the penalty of hunting a lion, a male lion, is 20,000 US dollars. And the magistrate can also impose a 10-year monthly sentence on the uh, culprit. So really, what that says very, very clear is that we, we take very seriously wildlife conservation in that you cannot just go there and, and uh, help yourself to a particular animal. Uh, those animals are preserved and are preserved for uh, the, the betterment and livelihood of the future. Illegal hunting is on the increase in Zimbabwe and the cyanide poisoning of elephants and other animals in Wange in 2013 confirms this. Hundreds of elephants died as a result. Meanwhile, Zimbabwean police are yet to make a comment regarding this latest development. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Our question to you today is, do you think trophy hunting should be banned in Africa? Give us your thoughts on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at RiseShineAfrica or at Channel Africa 1. Do you think trophy hunting should be banned in Africa? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now let's go back in time to today in 1990. The South African Communist Party, SACP, which had been unbanned in February 1990, was formally relaunched as a legal organization at a mass rally in Soweto, which was attended by approximately 45,000 people. Let's listen to the Secretary General of the SACP at the time. Well, we move on to our economics update. It's 8.45 with Tabi Solehoko. South Africa's Tourism Minister Derek Hanagom has admitted that the government's new visa regulations have had a huge negative impact on tourism. He says that the figures for the first quarter of this year show a worrying drop in the number of visitors. Hanagom says markets such as China have shown a drop of almost 40%. The new regulations require producing additional documents in an effort to protect children who are traveling. However, Hanakom has acknowledged that human trafficking is a serious problem, but says the numbers being used to justify the new uh, rules are inaccurate. African diplomats say the newly enacted 10-year Africa Growth and Opportunity Act is a win-win for African nations and the United States. Priscilla Huff reports. It's a sentiment shared by U.S. President Barack Obama, who just returned home from a trip to Kenya and Ethiopia. Trade was one of the issues he addressed during a press conference in Addis Ababa. 
The ongoing merger of the diamond mining companies in Zimbabwe operating in the Marengi area will be completed before the end of this year. That's according to Mines and Mining Development Minister Walter Chitakwa. Shinganyoka reports. Authorities say plans to create a single diamond mining company out of the seven currently operating are at an advanced stage. The mines minister says the government plans to create an entity in which it will have a 50% shareholding. The Promotion and Protection of Investment Bill in South Africa will promote investments and protect investors' interests. That's according to the country's Minister of Trade and Industry. The bill has been tabled in Parliament after months of public consultation. The Ministry says the bill seeks to ensure the country remains open to foreign investment, adding it will strike a balance between the rights and obligations of investors and ensure equal treatment to be, uh, between foreign and local investors. Kenya's central bank says that the country needs to rein in its debt and current account deficit in order to stabilize economic fundamentals, including the exchange rate. The shilling is trading at close to three-and-a-half-year lows and down 11.5% against the U.S. dollar this year, although the central bank has hiked uh, rates at three percentage points since June. The bank says the most important measure that is before Kenya is to underscore fiscal prudence in order to restore macro stability. Financial indicators at this hour, the U.S. dollar trades at 12.58 South African Rand, 9.92 in Botswana, 7.62 in Zambia, 6.4 British Pound, 9.0 Euro, Gold, 1.096 dollars, Platinum, 9.84 dollars an ounce, Brand Crude, 5.3 dollars, 1.5 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update, I'm Tabiso Lohoku. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Kulta Njoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our sports update up next with Tammy Kluza. Thanks for joining us in your sport. Let's start with soccer, where Congolese striker Bebe Ndei is in intensive care after falling on his head during a match. The 25-year-old AC Leopard captain was hurt in the 17th minute of his side Confederations Cup Group B match that was played against Egypt's Zamalek on Saturday. He was taken to the Air Force Specialized Hospital in Cairo and arrived in a very bad condition. And yesterday, Dr. Salah Abdekhalid said that the player was doing better, but it was too early to say 
if he will play again. An official from Zomalek who won the match 2-0 in Cairo said that his club would pay the medical expenses. They led the Lepers to Confederations Cup glory in 2012, beating Joliba of Mali 4-3 on aggregate in the final. He was also named to the Congo squad for their tw- he was also named for their Congo squad for the 20 African Nations Cup championships that was played in South Africa. South African women's team Banyana Banyana are back in camp to prepare for the second leg third round 2016 Rio Olympic qualifiers against Kenya. The South Africans take a 1-0 advantage to Kenya with Lebohang Ramalepe's goal from the first leg played at the Dobsonville Stadium two weeks ago. Banyana Banyana will travel to Nairobi tomorrow. South Africa and the Harambe Starlets of Kenya will lock horns on Saturday at the Machakos Stadium. And the kickoff of that match is half past two Central African time in Machakos. Further afield, Arsenal manager Arsene Wenger says that his transfer spending will not be influenced by other clubs as he prepares for the Community Shield meeting with the champions Chelsea. Blues boss Jose Mourinho hinted on Monday that the Gunners' spending in recent years outstripped Chelsea. Arsenal won the FA Cup for the second successive season in May and finished third in the Premier League, 12 points behind winners Chelsea. And now in cricket, tributes continue to pour in for former Proteus captain Clive Rice, who died in Cape Town Hospital yesterday. He was 66 years old. He was diagnosed with brain tumor earlier this year. Janet Witten reports. The 66-year-old Rice had gone to India earlier this year to receive controversial robotic radiation treatment at Bangalore's Healthcare Global Hospital. It had been believed the treatment went well. Rice was regarded as one of the best cricketers in the world, but almost his entire career coincided with South Africa's sporting isolation. But he was named the captain of South Africa for the first matches following the lifting of sporting sanctions, the three one-day internationals against India in 1991. England captain Alastair Cook says that they want to bounce back from a disastrous showing at the Lords by playing well enough to get a special edge-busting crown on their edge-busting crowd rather on their side in the third Ashes Test against Australia. Cook's team were accumulated by by 405 runs in the second Test at the home of cricket as Australia levelled the five-match series one all. Here's Alastair Cook. Yeah, Lords was obviously a tough four days, um, especially on the back of Cardiff where we played so well. And you know, we, we talked about backing up a, a good performance with another, and we couldn't manage to do it. Um, you know, that's that's now gone. Uh, obviously, had a few days off and got away from each other. And I think you, the mood in the camp is fantastic. Um, you know, and I think the lads have been talking about the opportunity we've got ahead of ourselves now. And finally, Jean de Villas is set to make his return for South Africa when they face Argentina in their final rugby championship test of the year in Teben on August the 8th. The centre has not played a competitive feature since last November, having had to complete a reconstruction of his knee, is expected to be added to the Springbok squad in what is a major boost for the side ahead of the World Cup in England. Also likely to be back from injury are experienced scrummer Furi Dupri and flanker Velem Alberts, who, along with John de Villiers, will be assessed by the team's medical staff in Devon and are expected to be added to Mayor's options. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Lulu Gabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour, U.S. President Barack Obama slams African leaders who cling to power and Burundi opposition attends parliament opening after disputed elections. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutsu Ramagaza, Jane Matebula, and technical producer Murray Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send us an SMS on 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Liza James from Mozambique with a song titled Ranzawen. Rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai.